So hello and welcome back to this episode of Writing Muse, Writing Mentor. I'm Jeanette de Beauvoir and I'm here to give you a little inspiration. That's the muse part and a process to make that come true. And that is the mentor part. And today what I want to talk about is um, not specific to writing, but really to everybody who creates. I'm looking at how to boost your creativity in general, how to think more creatively and create more creatively, if that makes any sense. Most of us were taught that creativity comes from the thoughts and emotions of the mind. The greatest singers, dancers, painters, writers, and filmmakers recognize that the most original and even transformative ideas actually come from the core of our being, which most people feel is accessed through a sort of open mind consciousness. Now, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. In ancient traditions, open mind consciousness was considered to be a spiritual awakening. It was the great enlightenment that dissolves the darkness of confusion and fear and ushers in peace, happiness, clarity, and contentment, all of which would be great things to have. Today, the notion that there's one formulaic way to achieve this spiritual awakening and creative vibrancy has pretty much been blown apart. You don't have to run off to a monastery or practice meditation for 30 years before attaining a breakthrough. But our culture's overemphasis on fame and great success often turns people away from their creative inclinations because they feel that if they can't reach a professional goal with whatever it is they do, their writing, their singing, their painting, then they shouldn't bother. What they don't realize is that simply dabbling in the fine arts with no specific goals or intentions awakens an ability to approach life, all of life, with greater openness and greater curiosity. In the same way that mindfulness practice jogs the areas of the brain associated with well-being, optimism, and compassion, so does immersing yourself in any artistic exploration or enjoyment jog your creativity. I've actually noticed this to be true. Um, obviously, my most cherished and important creative endeavor is writing. But um, lately, I've taken to doing a little bit of visual art and um, have found that the act of doing it has stimulated thought and has made me feel better. There must be some dopamine in there somewhere. And I'm not doing it with any goal other than to have fun. And if you can do something creative and have fun at it, then everything is going to get better in your life. Another thing you can do is immerse yourself in nature. Experiencing nature can awaken a sense of vitality and infinity, infinity excuse me, which becomes a path to your core creativity. Without conscious thought, you can look up at the astonishing number of stars in the sky or leaves on a single tree in a forest, and feel a sense of vastness and spaciousness. I do this, of course, with the ocean, but you can do it with anything, a desert, a forest. As you gaze at the heavens the ancients observed, knowing that humanity throughout history and across continents has pondered these very same stars, you experience being a part of something larger than yourself that feels as if it's always existed and always will. And I do want to mention in this the importance as well of entering sacred space. It doesn't have to be a church. In ancient times, sacred spaces, 
I will include them here. Churches, temples, and sites for group rituals were built on land whose features evoked a sense of spirituality. Treks to places like Stonehenge or the temples of India have become more popular for Westerners who yearn for a sense of connection to their divine nature. Yet sacred spaces can exist wherever you feel a sense of spaciousness and connection to the creative, life-supporting forces of the universe. It's true that in medieval times, churches were often built on the same sites that had been used for pagan worship. And there's a certain energy that exists when the sacred has been approached over centuries in a certain space. You can feel that energy and it's something that truly can feed your creativity. You can also arrange the space in your home or office to bring in light. And nature will help you feel expansive and access your core creativity as you open up to your important role in all of creation. I'm a big advocate of indoor plants. First of all, they help you breathe better, which is not a bad thing. Um, but also surrounding yourself with living things, even when you cannot be out where there are living things, is going to boost your creativity. It's going to boost your sense of well-being. I also urge you to seek out creative stimulation. When the band U2 wanted to reinvent their music, they traveled to Berlin, a bustling, gritty city unfamiliar to them, and soaked in the atmosphere, allowing its energy to infuse their songwriting and sound. Similarly, a famous actor I once saw in an art museum stood before painting for a good 10 minutes before his throwing his arms out and his head back and standing for many more minutes as if opening his heart to a beam of creative energy emanating from that painting. I will never forget that experience. We all have, excuse me, we all have this capacity to open to the vital forces around us and allow ourselves to take them in, mingling them with our own passions. Sorry, I had to take a drink there. And this brings us to a very, very, very major category, at least in my life, which is sleep. There's an expression, sleep on it. And apparently this works. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'll give you an example um, that I, I read recently. Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones believed very deeply that creative stuff happens while you sleep. And he used to sleep with a guitar and a tape recorder back in the old days of tape recorders by his bed. And got a lot of nonsense, of course, as one does. Um, but one morning he woke up and what he heard on the tape was the opening riff to Satisfaction, which of course became and still is a hugely, hugely, hugely popular um, song. Of course, he also got another 45 minutes of snoring after he put down the guitar. But obviously, he's accessing something that he could not access when he was awake. I tried this, okay? I tried this many times. I put a pad of paper by my bed. I told myself I was going to wake out of a dream and create something. And one morning, it seemed to have happened. I woke up and I realized that I had found the, the answer to war, that I had discovered the path to world peace. And I was so excited to look at my pad of paper to see where I had put this, this amazing discovery. And what I had written was a dill pickle. Yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, the 
path to world peace is a dill pickle. So you'll forgive me if I'm still a little skeptical about all this. However, sleep is really an important topic, and it's an important topic to me in particular because I'm an insomniac, but um, I wish I could get more sleep than I do, but it also apparently does work. There's a researcher from Cardiff University called Penny Lewis, and she has a theory. As you start to fall asleep, she says, you enter non-REM or REM sleep. That includes a light phase that takes up most of the night and a period of much heavier slumber called slow wave sleep or SWS. When millions of neurons fire simultaneously and strongly, sort of like a cellular Greek chorus. It's something you don't see in a wakeful state at all, says Lewis. You're in a deep physiological state of sleep and you'd be unhappy if you were woken up. During that state, the brain replays memories. For example, the same neurons that fired when a rat ran through a maze during the day will spontaneously fire while it sleeps at night in roughly the same order. These reruns help to consolidate and strengthen newly formed memories, integrating them into existing knowledge. But Lewis explains that they also help the brain extract generalities from specifics. And that's not uh, unique to her. Others have supported this idea. Let's say you replay memories of birthday parties, she says. They all involve presents, cake, maybe balloons. The areas of the brain that represent those things will be more strongly activated than areas that represent who was at each party or other idiosyncrasies. Over time, the details may fade from memory while the gist of it remains. That's how you might form your representation of what a birthday party is. Some scientists have argued that dreaming is the conscious manifestation of this process. It's effectively your, dream, your brain watching itself, replaying and transforming its own memories. This process happens all the time, but Lewis argues that it's especially strong during SWS because of a tight connection between two parts of the brain. The first, the hippocampus is a seahorse-shaped region in the middle of the brain that captures memories of events and places. The second, the neocortex, is the outer layer of the brain, and among other things, it's where memories of facts, ideas, and concepts are stored. Lewis's idea is that the hippocampus nod nudges the neocortex into replaying memories that are thematically related, that occur in the same place, or share some other detail. That makes it much easier for the neocortex to pull out common themes. That makes sense. The other phase of sleep, REM, which stands for rap rapid eye movement, is very different. That Greek chorus of neurons that sang so well during non-REM sleep de descends into a cacophonous din as various parts of the neocortex become activated seemingly at random. And we've all experienced this one. Meanwhile, a chemical called an acetylchlorine, I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing that right, but it's a chemical, it's the same one um, that other, other researchers have identified in their sleep-inspired work. This, this chemical floods the brain, disrupting the connection between the hippocampus, I'm sorry, I'm not doing well today, and the neocortex, and placing both in an especially flexible state where connections between neurons can be more easily formed, strengthened, or weakened. These traits, Lewis suggests, allow the neocortex to unconsciously search for similarities between seemingly unrelated concepts, like, say, the way the 
planets revolve around the sun, the way the electrons orbit the nucleus of an atom. Suppose you're working on a problem and you're stuck, she says. In REM sleep, the neocortex will replay abstracted, simplified elements of that problem, but also other things that are randomly activated. It'll then strengthen the commonalities between these things. When you wake up the next day, that slight strengthening might allow you to see what you were working on in a slightly different way. That might just allow you to crack the problem. I have to say that this makes absolute sense to me. I don't know if it works for you, but you are able to sit up and, and say, okay, I've got a little bit of a different perspective on it. Um, perhaps that is this sleep on it and the ideas will come to you. Um, I gave the example of my dill pickle, which is obviously a very disappointing moment in my life. Um, but I will say that when I'm struggling with a plot for a mystery novel, um, stepping back from it, doing other things, and then sleeping, um, I won't say that that sure fire and always works, but it sometimes works. And sometimes we can take sometimes, can't we? Many of these ideas have been out there, says Lewis. Some people argue that slow-wave sleep is important for creativity. Others argue that it's REM. We're saying it's both. Essentially, non-REM sleep extracts concepts and REM sleep connects them. And then, crucially, they build on one another. The sleeping brain goes through one cycle of non-REM and REM sleep every 90 minutes or so. Over the course of a night or several nights, the hippocampus and neocortex repeatedly sync up and decouple, and the sequence of abstraction and connection repeats itself. An analogy would be two researchers who initially work on the same problem together, then go away and each think about it separately, and then come back together to work on it further, Lewis says. The obvious implication is that if you're working on a difficult problem, Allow yourself enough nights of sleep, she adds, particularly if you're trying to work on something that requires thinking outside the box. Maybe don't do it in too much of a rush. Now, I just want to add that um, I, I don't remember the name of the, um, of the doctor, of the researcher, but recently I heard that um, you have to look at the fact that if, if humans need eight hours of sleep, that's not accidental. We've had millions of years um, for our, our, our bodies and our beings to adapt. And during a lot of that time, sleeping would have made you extremely vulnerable. You're not reproducing while you're sleeping. You're not eating or nourishing yourself while you're sleeping. And you're making yourself vulnerable to attack when you're sleeping. So if we still require, after all that eight hours of sleep, then sleep is doing something pretty amazing and pretty important. Well, let's back, back up now. Go back to creators in general, and um, because I'm a writer, to writers in particular. Uh, most of us hate answering the question, where do you get your ideas, which everyone seems to ask, because the reality is most of the time we don't know. Um, our ideas often come to us when something inside us is asleep and or bored and and something else has time to come by so that when 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 our brain is um either sleeping or is thinking of something else that's when sometimes some other little flame or 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 a little spark gets lit and that's the beginning of it neil gaiman said 
well, told his seven-year-old daughter's class when they asked him the question, he said, you get ideas from daydreaming. You get ideas from being bored. You get ideas all the time. The only difference between writers and other people is we notice when we're doing it. So it's not so much that successful writers have more creative ideas than the rest of the world. They just do a better job of listening to their inner voice when it starts talking. And that's it for us for today. So glad that you joined me and I look forward to see, hearing you, having you with me next time on Writing Muse and Writing Mentor. This is Jeanette de Beauvoir. Have a grand day. Bye.